to the back. And adults, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we will see if we make it there this evening as we consider and continue on with our study of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Before we go any further this evening, let's seek God's face and seek His presence through the Spirit um, as we study this evening. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank You again for the opportunity we have to just come and to open Your Word. Father, we thank You that uh, there is no other argument or no other creed needed, Father, that we uh, do not look to ourselves, we do not look to our righteousness, but Lord, we find ourselves fully and completely safe and sound in Christ. Father, I pray that we would uh, continue to grow in our faith, Lord. Uh, Help us to depend upon Him more. And help us, Father, to respond to such an extravagant gift of Your love as we see that You have loved us in Christ. Uh, Father, You demonstrated that love by sending Your Son. And Lord, as we continue to see um, this office of King that mankind was created for, that mankind failed uh, to keep, Father, but yet that we are able to see fully completed in Christ. May we be challenged and encouraged uh, to follow His example, to seek to be like Him. And Father, as we look at these examples in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament kings, and particularly the patriarchs who um, are, are wonders of Your grace, Lord, uh, may we seek to, uh, by Your grace, be used uh, as You use them. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. Well, again, we're looking at these threefold offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and we're spending time looking at the kingly office. And uh, now what we, we've spent some time looking at, of course, that the creation of Adam and Eve. We saw how there was a failure with Cain as he sought to not um, subdue the earth, but he subdued his brother by killing him. We saw how... There was a uh, complete um, sort of turning over of the dominion mandate. Instead of seeking to do things God's way, there was violence that was used against other mankind. And and we end up right before the flood. God's indictment upon the earth is that every thought and intention of the hearts of men was only evil continually. And so God brings about a dominion reset. And we looked at that with the flood and how the flood came and God wiped off everyone from the face of the earth, the, the animals, the plants, uh, except for Noah and two of every kind of animal that were placed into the ark. And we see with Noah, there's an opportunity for uh, this dominion reset to happen and for Noah to exercise dominion and to be a king. And he does so well for the most part, but what we find is very soon, the, his, he who was a man of the earth begins being overcome by the earth or the fruit of the earth, the vine, and he ends up getting drunk and we see failure there. Then we see this, this time of, of united peace in the Tower of Babel and that mankind was united together. They were working together. They were subduing the earth, uh, but they did it not for the, for the result of making a name for the Lord and giving Him glory, but they sought to make a name for themselves. And of course, God confuses mankind at that point. He scatters them. And uh, essentially, at the Tower of Babel, we have the introduction of languages into the world. And of course, we saw how even through that, God is still working and bringing about His desired end for humanity. So in the book of Genesis, once we have the Tower of Babel, what we end up finding is God now 
continues to keep his promise. And this is so important for us to recognize. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that there would be a curse reverser, the seed of the woman who would come and turn back the consequences of sin that had come as a result of their sin. And what we find is that God continues, even when he, even with the flood, he purposes to destroy mankind, yet Noah finds favor in his sight. And so now what we begin to see is God working with the patriarchs. And we're going to be looking at the patriarchs. And, of course, when we think of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, we think of who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, no, not Moses, Joseph. So what we end up finding is that instead of there being a tribe from Joseph, Joseph has tribes from his children. And so that actually sort of places him into the realm of the patriarchs. And so and that's, yeah, I don't know, that's maybe two or three months down the road. I don't know, maybe not quite that long. But, but we'll get to Joseph and we'll see how that works. But we're going to begin this evening by looking at Abraham. I'm going to begin this evening by looking at Abraham. Now, I had you turn to Genesis chapter 15, uh, because Genesis 15 is the account of God's covenant with Abraham. And we'll, Lord willing, get to that and read through that passage. It's a, it's a powerful passage that shows how God is continuing to keep his promises. But before we get to Genesis 15, we'll have to sort of build the story up. And again, this is nothing, this is nothing new. People know the story of Abraham very well. They know what God has done there. But what I particularly want us to do is as we explore this story again and see what God did with Abraham, to notice how God is continuing that dominion mandate, how he is uh, reinforcing this kingly office in his choice of Abraham. And so that's where we begin as we look at God's choice. Now again, man's failure to exercise the dominion they were created for is evident in both Noah and the rebellion at Babel. What we end up finding is that can we look among men for the curse reverser? Is the perfect prophet, priest, and king going to come from even the best of men? And what we find over and over again is no. And that's demonstrated both, as we mentioned, at Babel and at the flood. Yet, God does not forget his promises. And so he chooses one particular man, and he chooses more particularly his family to be the means through which he'll provide the promised seed of the woman. What we end up seeing happening is God chooses families. And as that family begins to grow, that family very quickly turns into a kingdom. And that's what we see God establishing when he comes to Abraham. And I don't think we really think about it this way that much when we think about the patriarchs, because we know they were sort of nomadic. Abraham and his family were, were leaving Ur of the Chaldees. They were traveling and sort of wandering throughout the, um, the land of Canaan. But yet, it, this is the very seeds of what will become the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth at one point. It's Solomon's reign. There will be this Im Im immense and majestic kingdom, this nation created through Abraham and through his family. And what we find is this choice of Abraham demonstrates that the promised ruler will not come through the efforts of men, but through the power of God. In fact, if you want to just turn back a few pages to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, I'll actually have it up on the, on the screen. Genesis 11, 27 through 30. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah is Abraham's father. 
Terah fathered Abram. And of course, his name is not Abraham yet at this point. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. Now, it's interesting to see here how Moses is clear about that. Each of them didn't take wives, plural. Both of them took how many wives? One wife. And again, when we look back in, in history, we look back before the flood, we look back even at the time of Babel, one of the things you see happening as a corruption of this dominion mandate that was given when God created mankind, he made them male and female in his image. He joined them together, one man and one woman, in a perpetual covenant so that they could fulfill this, co- this uh, dominion mandate. And so we see that happening here with Abram. Abram took a wife, and her name was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now it's really interesting that that particular detail is placed into the narrative at this point. Because if God is building a a kingdom, if he's going to make of Abram a kingdom, what is going to be necessary for that kingdom to perpetuate? He's going to need to have children. And yet we see that in, in what's happening here at this very beginning of the call to Abraham, God chooses someone who is married to someone who is barren, who's not able to have children. I mean, this was a major condition of the dominion mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And yet here God chooses someone who, from all physical outward appearances, could not be fruitful and multiply. And so what we see from the very instance of God choosing Abram at this point, and particularly Sarai at this point, is that God is the one who's going to have to do this, that the kingdom that's going to be established through Abraham's seed has to be done not by the power of men, but by the power of God. Then we see the call that God gives to Abram. In fact, if you want to look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. So Genesis 11 sets that up. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, notice again that term family. Remember what what ends up becoming nations? The beginning of those nations are found in families. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So what we see here is God calls to Abraham in a specific call to create from Abram a great nation. 
God's call to Abram is this specific call. Abram is called to leave his country, to leave his kindred, and to leave his father's house. What we have is something distinct being made from the rest of the world. Again, up until this point, and Abraham's family, or Abram's family, they were just another one of the tribes that had been dispersed from Babel. They were Chaldeans. They were living in Ur. There was nothing essentially special about them. But yet God in His sovereign grace reached down and called to Abram that this nation that Abram and his family would create would be no fiefdom of the Chaldeans nor of the Canaanites. It is not that God is creating from underneath these larger nations a vassal nation. He's creating something distinct. And that, that can't be understated here in what God is doing. He is creating by His choice in Abram a new kingdom. A nation created not from the division of the nations at Babel, not a result of God's judgment on the world, but rather a result of His sovereign grace. His blessing. I think there's indications or similarities here in the way in which God calls His people today. God calls us and saves us, not because of who we are, but because He is pleased to save His people. It is, it is amazing to see how when we are called to Christ, we are to turn away from and turn aside from any other identity. Our identity is to be found solely in Him. We're no longer to be known as this tribe or that tribe. We're no longer to even be known as those that are parts of our family. In fact, Jesus says that those who follow Him will be set against father and mother and brother and sister and husband and wife. Because that distinction that we are Christ's becomes the most distinctive thing about us. We see that same idea here with Abram and his call. God promises to create a great nation of Abram through God's blessing. Through God's blessing. And it is through this blessing, this great nation, that God will not only bless Abram and his family, but he will make Abram to be a blessing to the world so that every family shall be blessed. Remember, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, God created man in his image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created him, he them. And then it says, and he what? Blessed them. We have to recognize that anything that we accomplish, anything that is to be done, as we seek to, and we'll get to this again in month, this one will definitely be months down the road, but as we understand our roles as those who are restored to speak prophetically according to the Word of God, to, to provide a priestly office as we, intercede for our, as we intercede to the Father through Christ, as we pray for others, and particularly as we're called to exercise dominion in this world, all of that, all of it, is dependent upon God's grace. We need His blessing for every aspect of what we've been created for. God has never called mankind to live independent of Him. In fact, that was the entire problem with Adam and Eve's sin. They wanted to be autonomous. 
They wanted to live their own way. And so we see here as God is, is now choosing the patriarchs, choosing Abram, that he provides that needed, that necessary blessing so that they can fulfill the role for which he's called them. Well, this call has to be responded to, right? I mean, if we look here in chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, the land I will show you. And he makes promises. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And I'll bless all the families of the earth and you. So that's the call. That's the promise. That's what God has said. But what was Abram's responsibility? To what? Obey. And so we see Abram as an obedient king. Verse 4, it's, I just love it. We have the promises and the grace of God in verses 1 through 3. And so in response to God's grace, what does Abram do? He went. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram went as the Lord had told him. What's striking about the call to Abram is his response. He does what God says. And see, here we see the key requirement of kings. Obedience and submission to the king of kings. This is the key requirement of every king. Obedience and submission to the king of kings. When we begin to look at the kings of Israel, and we're not, don't worry, we're not going to go through every single king of Israel. That will take us forever. We'll look at sort of the 30,000 feet fly overview. But how were, how were they judged? How, how were the kings of Israel judged? They were judged based upon whether or not they were loyal to the Lord God. It wasn't, you know, it, they weren't judged. They're, they're, the, the judgment passed upon them was not based upon how well the country did, how prosperous it was. It wasn't based upon the social programs they had or how well the economy was doing or how strong an army they had, how many military conquests they had. That's not what God used to determine whether or not a king was effective. It was dependent on their submission to the king of kings. And we find in Abram this submission, this obedience. And so, we see Abram leaving with a sizable kingdom already amassed. He already has a sizable kingdom to administer. If we look in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 12, Abram took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. You have to understand what, what, when God was calling Abram, it wasn't just like, all right, just grab Sarai by the hand and head on out, you know, jump in the RV and, and head on down. That wasn't it. I mean, you had a sizable amount of people that he had to care for. I, I know those of you who have kids, all right, you probably are tearing your hair out trying to keep track of them when you take them on one little trip on vacation. Imagine hundreds of people that Abram is going to have to care for. He's going to have to provide for. He doesn't know what lays ahead for them. He's, he's just going to have to go out and set out and listen to what the Lord has called him to do. And he's going to have to exercise dominion. He's going to have to subdue the earth 
to provide for the family. I mean, all of the dominion mandates we see given to mankind, they're sort of encapsulated and intensified in this call to Abram. And so he goes and obeys the Lord. Now, if we remember what the call in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was, that dominion mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And that word subdue has the idea of conquer. And we talked about some of the the implications of that regarding the fact that creation was going to fight against. In fact, it was maybe even a warning about the temptation that was going to come in Genesis chapter 3 from the serpent, which was a created being. But that subjugation, that, that that requirement to conquer was implied in the dominion mandate. What do we see with Abram? Is he a conqueror? And the answer is yes, he is a conquering king. And we actually see this, of course, as you go through the story, and some of the details of of Abram's story we're skipping over, such as Abram and Lot separating. Lot, of course, decides to settle in what he views as the better land near Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram goes his own way. But then we find that there comes a time, and particularly in chapter 14, and we spent a lot of time looking at this passage when we looked at Melchizedek. But there's this war that breaks out in near the Dead Sea area. We have these kings that are vassal kings, uh, particularly to a guy, Cherdelamer. And Cherdelamer, who had had other kings, including the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, as vassals to him, they rebelled. They said, we're done. We're not paying the tributes to you. And so Cherdelamer brings and wages war against these nations. Now, here's the thing. These are, these are city-states. This war is happening between them. Where did Abram's nephew decide to settle? Near Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as a result of that, when Cherdelamer comes in with his forces, guess who also gets captured? Lot, his family. And so what we see is we see Abram's kingly role described in his defeat of the armies of Cherdelamer. There's this battle that happens. The enemy is is pressing and, and winning the battle. And there's one man who escapes and comes to Abram, the Hebrew. We actually see this in chapter 14, verse 13. And he says, listen, Lot has been taken captive. And look at verse 14 of Genesis 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. What I find interesting here is Where did they get the training? Who administered that? Who was doing that? It had to have been Abram as he's exercising dominion over the kingdom that God had given him. He takes these men who are born in his house. And how many of them are there? 318 of them. So if we we just look at this, we're seeing the size of Abram's nation really growing, his family growing. And look at verse 15. We see him being smart, using tactics. He divided his forces by them by night, he and his servants. And he defeats them, and he pursues them north of Damascus. And then he brings back all the possessions, 
and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. What we find throughout this passage, and this is something that really stuck out to me as I was reading this, the term king is used constantly in this passage. You know, if you begin in, in verse 1 of chapter 14, there's the king of Sinai, the king of Elazar, the king of Elam, the king of Golem. I mean, over and over again, king, king, king is repeated. I mean, this passage rings and is oozing the idea of the kingly office. Nineteen times in the first section. Yet, what I find interesting, it is curiously not used of Abram. Now, why would that be? I think what we're showing here is there's something distinct about Abram's rule as opposed to the nations around him. Abram engages in warfare when his family is threatened. He divides his forces and applies them tactically to bring about the defeat of his enemies. And then we find that deliverance that he provides for his family and then for the people that these kings ruled over. This is what's really interesting. Remember what the promise was made to Abram? That he would be a what to the other nations? A blessing. And we see that, a little taste of that here in his defeat of these nations, this king, Chertelamer, and his armies. I mean, he is, he is being a blessing already. And so then we see this amazing scene with Melchizedek, who is also himself a king. Melchizedek means, if we take the name and look at it in, in the original language, it means king of righteousness and also king of Salem. And he meets with Abraham and the king of Sodom. Where? Look at verse, um, verse 17 of chapter 14. He meets with them at the valley of Shava, which is called what type of valley? The king's valley. And what we find here is, I really think what we see here is a recognition by heathen kings that Abram himself is acting as a sovereign, is acting as a king. As he's, as he's brought there, and we see this. So, again, this dominion mandate, this call for mankind to exercise dominion and to be kings, we see it all over chapter 14. As Abram is recognized, not just by heathen kings, but also by Melchizedek himself, who is not just a king, but he is also a priest of God Most High. Well, that story's amazing enough. I mean, if we look at it from the kingly perspective, that story is amazing enough. But then we come to Genesis chapter 15. And we see God establishing Abram as a king. We'll go ahead and read Genesis 15. And then we'll come back and make some observations about the passage. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, so the these things is everything that happened in chapter 14, the defeat of these armies, the salvation of Lot and his family, the bringing back of these other nations, the blessing that God, or that Abram has been to these nations, the recognition of Abram as a king. All right, so that's a lot. After these things, 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And I love this. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I think there probably would have been some concern. Is Chertelamer going to regroup after his defeat? Is he going to, to gather his armies and come back with a vengeance? And God comes to Abram and says, look, I'm your shield. Well, that, that, is, that is such a hopeful message to God's people. He is our shield. He's the one who protects and cares for us. I mean, if, if you think about it, where does both the Father and the Son, where are we held if we're in Him? We're held where? In His hands. So He comes to Abram. I'm your shield. And your reward shall be very great. But now Abram remembers something. God said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to, I'm going to, through your offspring. And that brings us back to the problem we saw at the very beginning. What's, what's the problem with Abram's offspring? He doesn't have any. And so he comes and he says to God, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. This would have been his head of house. This would have been the person that was in charge of the affairs that Abram had given to him. As, and again, we see just even from a practical standpoint, one of the things Abram is doing as a good king, as a good ruler, is he is um, providing and, and, and dividing his responsibilities among trusted people. And so the way of things back in those days, if he had no child, then Eliezer of Damascus was going to be the one who, upon Abram's death, would receive the kingdom. Now remember, how old was Abram when this all started? He wasn't no young pup, right? He was in his 70s. And this isn't like back in the day when people were living hundreds of years old. I mean, he, this is like, he's like you and me, 70, all right? It's probably not ready to j jump on the bandwagon and do all this stuff at this point. And so Abram said, Behold, verse 3, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now this is... This is very important, this subject of the word of the Lord, particularly as we understand the prophetic office. Because what was the prophet responsible for? The word of the Lord. This is, this is a promise from God's word. You can take this to the bank. The word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. You are very own son shall be your heir. And the word your very own son, I'm actually a little displeased with the way the ESV translates this. It's the, the son your, your, the son of your loins or the child of your loins is literally what's going on here. He will be your heir. And then God brings him outside. And he says to him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. 
Then he, the Lord, says to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And then we see this wonderful response to the promises of God. What is required of Abram at this point? I mean, God is the one who was saying, you are 70 years old. Your wife is similar in, in, similarly advanced in age. You have no heirs, but I tell you, you will have an heir. And so what, in that instance, what's the only thing required of Abram to do? To believe. And that's what he does. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. This, of course, is great passage that the Apostle Paul seizes upon to argue for what we call the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That it is not based, we are not counted righteous based on our righteousness or our actions, but that it is faith that brings about that consideration by the Lord. So look at, and again, I would digress there. I could go on and on about that one, but that's not our purpose here tonight. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And he points to how he brought him out from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's brought him there to give him the land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, this is interesting. Because Abram has expressed faith. He has exercised faith in the promises of God. But is his faith perfect? No. I mean, if, if you think about it, the whole statement, God settled it, I believe it, that what? Settles it. You've maybe heard that, that statement sort of thrown out there before. And that should be true. But here's Abram, and he's struggling. How shall I know? that I'll possess this land. And so God does something absolutely amazing, inconceivable. He says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Interesting. What's, what's God got in mind? Maybe these are going to be sacrifices that Abram's going to offer. And he he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, what is going on here? Abram splits them in half and essentially sets them on each side, and so there's a row of divided animal carcasses And Abram is here, and he's having to drive away the ravens and the birds of prey that are coming to to eat the carrion birds that would be there. And then look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, there's a deep sleep that falls on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then... The Lord, Yahweh, says to Abram, Know for certain, know for certain, 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, what's he referring to here? What's that affliction of 400 years? Egypt. Joseph is going to be integral in that. We watched the movie Moses last night. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a lot to unpack there. We don't have the time to to deal with it, but it's just amazing to see how in the midst of these amazing promises, God is also continuing to be a God of justice and bringing judgment on sin, particularly the sin of the Amorites. So he makes this promise to Abram. Okay? Abram's asleep. There's this darkness that fell upon him. And there's some question, is he even aware of what's going on here? We're not sure But it seems like at least at some level, Abram is going to have to be conscious of what God is saying here. And then the sun goes down and it was dark. And look what appears on the horizon. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces of the animals. Why? What's going on here? What is God doing? Verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what is going on here? Well, again, after the victory, God confirms and and settles his covenant to make a kingdom of Abram. It's no longer just something guaranteed by his promises made or the word of the Lord that he proclaimed to him. He is giving and making a covenant. He promises to provide protection and prosperity to him. He promises to provide an abundant people to Abram. And then he speaks of this greatness of the kingdom that he's going to make with Abraham. A kingdom whose descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. I mean, this is an amazing thing that God is doing here. You know, I I was struck by this as I was thinking about the the promise that God made. About them being as as, as plentiful as the stars of the heaven. Have you ever wondered why God made so many stars? You ever thought about that? Like, why? Now, we know the standard Sunday school answer is to glorify Him, and that is absolutely true. There are things in this universe that we have not even observed that speak of the great glory of God. That's how great our God is, and it's seen in what He has created. But there's, I think, another purpose that we see here in this passage. Anyone have any idea how many stars there are in the visible universe? Not just in our galaxy, but in the universe. From, from a, anybody, and I know that like, this is the type of stuff you guys look up every day, you know? Like, how many stars are there? Anybody have a guess? 
Huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there, in fact, all of creation is put to show us that God exists. So, yes, absolutely. Um, so, nobody has a guess. Right, this, this is the number that, that I came up with as I was reading. And, of course, there's debates about how many there are. Um, 2.21 sextillion stars in the universe. All right, that's, I, I should have put it down how many zeros that is. I think it's 24 zeros. All right? And so I just want you to think about, so our, our solar system is how many stars? One star. And there are planets and so much that goes on in that. I mean, 2.21 sextillion stars? Man, that's a lot. And when we hear that and then we read, that God has said that I will make your offspring like the stars of heaven. When he says, look to the stars and number them, if you're able to number them. And one of the things that's amazing about as we advance in technology and are able to look deeper and deeper into our universe is, what do we keep finding? More stars. Why does God do that? Why does He create so many? I think what we see here is one particular reason is to try to put a comparable number on how numerous God's blessings will be to Abram. And particularly for us who are the children of Abraham by faith, we share in those blessings. So when Paul writes that we are blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, how many blessings is that? I'd say at least 2.21 sextillion. I mean, that should blow our minds. Is our God not great and merciful? God assures Abram of the surety of this promise by entering into a covenant not with Abram, but with himself. What's going on here? with these animals being divided in half and, and this, this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And what we see here is a bit of a glimpse of the coming king of kings, the prophet, priest, and king. What God is doing is He is binding Himself. He's binding His very character and His essence to these promises. He's saying... If I go back on this promise, then may it be done to me as it is done to these animals. God is saying, may I be destroyed if I go back on this promise. The drawing in two of the animals was a statement that if either of the two individuals entering into a covenant together were to violate the terms of the agreement, then may it be done to them as it was done to those animals. And then God, in pure amazing grace, does not take Abram by the hand and pass him through that, but rather, for Abraham's sake, he covenants with himself and makes these promises for Abram's sake. What a further indication of God's grace. See, 
God was not caught off guard here by the fact that Abram was not going to be able to keep this kingly office perfectly. The conditions of this covenant, Abram couldn't keep them. The same thing happens with Moses' covenant. I mean, we saw that last night. He gives them the, the law, particularly the Ten Commandments. And, and I really appreciated how the movie last night pointed. And, and Moses says, God, there's no way any person can keep this. And God says, I know. Because I want you to see that you can't do it, but rather I will send my Son who will do it. And in the same way, God is covenanting with Himself and saying, I am going to bring salvation for all the families of the earth through your name, through Abram's family, for the sake of my glory. And so, what we see here is God says, know for certain. Those words cannot speak strongly enough. Know for certain. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. How certain? So certain that God covenants with Himself that these promises will be true. There can be no greater assurance of the kingly office given to Abraham and his offspring than God's covenant commitment. There's no, there's, there's no stronger way to bring it about. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews speaks about how when God wanted to show and provide surety to the children of the promise, he swore by the only thing that he could swear by. Because people swear by things greater than him. And what is greater than God? Nothing. So what does God have to swear by? Himself. So that by two unchangeable things, we can have hope. What, what, a, what a great God. What a promise that we have from his hands. What blessings. So, that's it, right? Abram goes off and he does a great job in this dominion call. All right, here we have, here he is, you know, he's got all these great promises and, and Abram just, just knocks it out of the park, right? No, what we find is that we have a foolish king. A foolish king, not an foolish king. I have a typo up there. God's promise to Abram reveals the family through which God will provide redemption, but Abram's foolish, sinful actions reveal that he is not the promised curse reverser. What are those foolish actions? Well, we see, first of all, in actually two instances, Abram is foolish in the way he serves as the king of his family. Foolish lies concerning his wife. And it is, again, amazing to see here we have a man who has heights of faith that are pointed to in places like Hebrews chapter 11, and then in seemingly the next breath, what is he doing? You're not my wife. You're so beautiful, Sarah. I love you so much. Just pretend to be my sister. And in fact, that's technically correct because you're my stepsister. 
And in two instances, both with the Egyptians and with Abimelech, Abram shows foolish and doubting conduct. He comes and, and says, you know, all these... And then and in both instances, what happens? Well, here's this beautiful, eligible, single lady. And so the kings of those nations like beautiful, eligible, single ladies. So both of them, in Egypt and with Abimelech, takes them in and says, oh, well, you'll be my wife now. Boy, the faith of Sarah here to, to trust God's plan even when her stupid husband is doing this stuff. And yet, through it all, this foolishness, even this foolishness and rebellion, God is exceedingly gracious to Abraham, and he blesses him. What's really interesting in both instances, both with the Egyptians and with Abimelech, is that once it is revealed what Abraham or Abram has done, What do these kings do? Do they punish Abram? No. They give him stuff. Oh, you tricked us? Here, take all these possessions. And again, what a wonderful God that blesses us even when we mess things up. So there's foolishness in the lies concerning his wife. There's the foolish choice to seek God's will his way. Of course, as we were to go and read further on, particularly in in chapter 16. So, again, heights of God's promises in chapter 15. Chapter 16, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So she has this Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah says, listen, I know you want an heir. And I know that God has promised that, but it's just not happening. We really can't trust God so We need to take control of the situation. Take my servant, go into her, and through her seed, or through through your seed, through her, that's how the promise will be made. And so they take control, and rather than doubting God, they they fall into this sinful action. They, They seek God's will, but they seek it not God's way. They seek it their way. I mean, if you think about it, it's understandable. It seemed from all natural considerations that it would be impossible for them to have a child. Not only had Sarah been been, um, uh, barren her entire life, now she's old. But what we see is that as this discontent rises... There's all sorts of problems caused. And so, so much so that we have Ishmael being born. Abram, once Isaac is actually born, there's a conflict between Sarah and Hagar. Abraham acts rashly, sends them away into the desert. God is merciful. Says he'll make of Ishmael a great nation. But that that nation would be a thorn in the side of Israel as a kingdom for generations. Listen, whenever we seek to do things, even good things, but we seek to do them outside of God's intended means, it brings disaster. And then we actually see foolish doubt in Abraham's family. As as God comes with 
three individuals to Abraham and, and they talks with Abraham outside of the tent. And Sarah hears this and says that in a year I'm going to come back and you'll have a child. And Sarah starts laughing at that. God confronts her with this. Sarah denies it, but it's all too clear what she's done. And so, Abram, Abraham acts foolishly. He acts sinfully. He acts not out of trust and, and dependence upon God. He acts sinfully. How many of us are like Abraham? My hand's up. And what is amazing about our God is that even in spite of all that, despite Abraham's actions as a foolish king, God continues to affirm his promise. When he comes to them and, and, and these three men come there and, and, and the promise is made, God says this in Genesis 18, 17 through 19, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. What's interesting there is we see a connection between spiritual growth and dominion mandate. What is Abraham supposed to do to his household? He is to command them. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so what we see here is amazing hope. That even in that foolishness, God continues his promises. And and here's, here's something that I think we miss Why does God keep His promises to us? Is it it because He wants to prove Himself to us? As though He needs to prove Himself to us in some sense. I think sometimes we think about it that way. Like, well, God made His promises and, and God's faithfulness is all about proving Himself to us. Listen, we are nothing in comparison to our great God. But you know what is amazing here is instead of God making this covenant with Abraham, he makes it with himself for Abraham's sake so that if he were to turn back on it, he would cease to be God. In other words, God is keeping his promises not for necessarily our benefit, but he's keeping uh, his promises to show his great majesty and name. And listen, that is a much greater hope for us because the God who never changes is never going to turn back on His promises. And when He makes them for our benefit, hallelujah, we have those blessings. God remained faithful to His promise, and He gives Abraham an heir to rule over the kingdom God was building for Abraham. And that heir, His name is Isaac. And so that's what we'll pick up next week, looking at Isaac and likely Jacob at the same time, as these are now the children of Abraham, the kings of this new kingdom that God is building by His grace. What a great God we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it. And 
Father, I pray that you would just work in our midst through your Spirit. Thank you, Father, for your abundant promises. Thank you, Father, for the, the, the life of Abraham and just everything that's shown there, both the, the wonders of what he did as faith worked within him and he responded in right ways and also the weaknesses, Father, that we so clearly relate with. And through it all, we see that you are faithful. May we continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, who is the priest of priests, who is the prophet of prophets, who is our Savior. Thank you, Father, for these wondrous hopes. And we pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.